We have this week. Next week, the Shaws are going to be speaking during Sunday school. And then the week after that is going to be the last class I'm going to teach on worship. And so if you've been enjoying that, the worship series, then you're going to be really bummed out. And if you have not been, then you're going to be really excited to hear Micah start, start teaching in January. Um, but let me encourage you, please send in your questions. Email them to me. I, I promise I'll look at them and figure out a good way for you to hear the answers. What I want to talk about today is something I have been hinting at. We have been tiptoeing towards it. I keep addressing it or bringing it up. And now I actually want us to actually talk about it, which is the question of the regulative principle of worship. Um, Remember, I want to keep reviewing because we need to have these three terms in our minds. We've used this term elements. That's the what of worship. What do we do in worship? Forms. That's the way of worship. How do we actually do the elements? And then the how, the circumstances. What are the basic things that you must decide that you have to do you, that you can't leave undecided in worship? What do you set the thermostat at? Do you stand or sit? All of that kind of, it kind of feels at times like it might be a little bit uh, belabored, but you need to figure out something. And that's what you need to do in the circumstances of worship. So let's talk about what the regulative principle is. Actually, I'm going to push this forward like I always forget to do. There you go. And then I'll step back a little and bring this with me. How's that? I'm recording. Um, The regulative principle says this. Uh, Derek Thomas puts it this way. He says, nothing must be required as essential to public worship except that which is commanded by the word of God. Um, The way I've put it up here, the elements of worship must be that which is commanded in the word of God. So notice that the forms and circumstances, this this doesn't apply to the forms and circumstances. It does apply to the elements of worship. Um, So two reasons why the regulative principle is important. And then I want to give you my arguments for it. Um, The first reason is this. The church has no power to impose on worshipers what they can and cannot do. And so the regulative principle is a reminder that the church is limited in its power. The church is limited in what it can actually ask of members of the church. Uh, The authority of the church is ministerial and declarative. When we speak for God, we should speak with the authority of God's word, not with the force of the office. And so the regulative principle restrains us. It restrains the pastor. It restrains the session from making you do creative things. That may very well be well-intentioned, but they also don't come from the word of God. Um, The second reason the regulative principle is important is because we have a fallen propensity to idolatry. We have a natural fallen propensity to idolatry. And so unsanctioned elements of worship are idolatry, according to the second commandment. Um, Our church's shorter catechism says, this is question 51 says that the second commandment forbids the worshiping of God in, by any way that is not appointed in God's word. And so because we take seriously the, 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 the problem of idolatry, we take seriously the regulative principle. Okay, you've seen what it is. Let me give you the arguments for it. And if you have trouble understanding it, then maybe it'll start to come together as we work through this. The first argument that I want to make, and I want to just, I've written them down up here so you can at least see the bullet points. The first reason why the regulative principle, I think, is biblical is because of the deep concern God has for his worship. 
And specifically, I want you to, if you have your Bibles, you can turn here, but I'm going to read it out loud. So, you know, do what works. But in Leviticus chapter 10, there's a very famous story, or at least if, uh, if you're into the regulative principle, then it's very famous. Uh, regulative principle people love this story, so I love it. I mean, this, it's a story where two guys die, so maybe I shouldn't say I love it. Um, but here's what it says in Leviticus 10. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, remember Aaron's their father. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So uh, the church father Cyprian writing in the 200s said this about this passage. He said, the sons of Aaron who set upon the altar a strange fire not commanded by the Lord were at once blotted out of the sight of the avenging Lord. These examples you will see are being followed wherever the tradition which comes from God is despised by lovers of strange doctrine and replaced by teaching of mere human authority. And so I think that there's, there are a lot of takeaways that we could have from the story of Nadab and Abihu. But the first big takeaway that I want us to see is that is related to worship. And the, and the lesson is this. God doesn't only care that he is worshipped. He does care about the way he is worshipped. He doesn't just care that he is worshipped. He cares about the way that he's worshipped. And that's one, of the, that's one of the applications of this story, I think. Um, in this situation, notice the actual offense of Nadab and Abihu. Like, I could see a lot of us going, wait a minute, these guys are serving as priests. These guys are doing important work. Uh, they're serving day in and day out. And here they are, and God just consumes them like this. Like, this seems unfair. I think that, that we might have a reaction that thinks this is not fair, that God is, lashes out at them the way that he does in the passage. Now, we don't know the exact nature of the fire that they, that they offer, but notice this, that the passage says they use strange fire that wasn't commanded. And so we, it could have been, there are a lot of possibilities. Like I have, I have probably five or six commentaries on Leviticus and everybody seems to have suggestions about what it might have been. Uh, some say it was a special kind of incense they shouldn't have used. Um, some say that they, whatever the practice was, it was something that came from a surrounding culture. Uh, it could have been a flame from an unusual source. Um, Jay Sklar wrote a good commentary on Leviticus and he says that they offered incense at the wrong time. He says they offered it at a time that wasn't commanded and at a place that wasn't commanded. And, and I do think Scalar is really a good commentator on Leviticus. I really trust his opinion. I don't personally see enough in the text to actually say that it's the time of day that they did it wrong. Um, we just, if, you, if you're just going straight from the text, we don't know what the strange fire was. It's never said. Uh, Gordon Wenham in his commentary on Leviticus says, what really mattered is stated next. It was fire which he had not commanded them. And this is, this is the thing that the author wants us to know. This is the thing that Moses wants us to know in Leviticus is that the problem with the fire, whatever it might have been, was that he had not commanded it. So Moses gives us the relevant information here. He had, God had not commanded the way that they did it. 
There's no lengthy uh, list of prohibitions, right? That, that doesn't say you should not use X or Y type of fire. Instead, in Scripture, it gives specificity to what they're supposed to do. And if they do something that's other than what's commanded, then the fire comes out and consumes Nadab and Abihu. So they didn't do an explicitly forbidden thing, but they did do an uncommanded thing. They added, in other words, to what God had said. So I want you to notice the lesson God has for Aaron and that God has for his sons. After they're consumed, he makes this statement. He says, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Um, Gordon Wenham does sort of a restatement of this. He says, Moses' words may be loosely paraphrased. The closer a man is to God, the more attention he must pay to holiness and the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard lesson for someone like Aaron to hear because these are his sons. These are his sons. And, and being burned alive is no joke, right? This is a, you could imagine the sorrow of a father grieving in this moment. And yet he hears the lesson and it says Aaron held his peace. Um, with regard to the subject of worship, we need to learn the lesson of Nadab and Abihu, which is this. God does care how he's approached. God does care how he's worshiped. He doesn't want us to be cavalier. Second, he doesn't leave us free to invent our own elements of worship. He told us what he desires and what he expects. And then third, to put it a little bit differently, Rather than asking if God has forbidden something that we would like to do, we should ask the question that Nadab and Abihu should have asked, which is, did God command it? And those are, that might sound like the same thing to you. It's not the same thing. He, they did something that wasn't commanded. They didn't do something that was forbidden. And those are different things. And so my first argument for the regulative principle, which says that the elements of worship must be that which is commanded by God in his word, My first argument is that Nadab and Abihu didn't do what was forbidden. They did what wasn't commanded. So in the same way, the regulative principle doesn't say that we should feel free to add elements to our worship as long as they aren't sinful or forbidden. Instead, it says that we should only perform elements in worship that God has commanded. And that lines up with Nadab and Abihu's experience. Now, that's my first argument for why I think the, I think the regulative principle is biblical. I think that it's, it follows the, the, the pattern that God set for us in Scripture. The second is something that might be a little bit surprising, and it's the nature of conscience. The nature of conscience. So you, you probably didn't realize you were in for a theology of the conscience this morning, but I, wanted, I, I actually think it's important for us to think deeply about the conscience. What is the conscience? First, the conscience, by the way, I just stole this from Herman, Herman Bovink. He's got a book, Reformed Ethics, and it's great. And he has a whole section on the conscience in there. But here's what he says. He says, the conscience is the inner voice that tells us that there is a gap between what we are and what we should be. Um, and one of the things he says is that before the fall, human beings did not have a conscience. They never had a sense that there was something that they were not that they ought to be. Because Adam and Eve aren't fallen. They have no, there is no space between who they are and who they should be. And so um, we still have a conscience in our own day by God's grace. But it is subjective evidence of the fall. Um, The fact that we feel guilty and the fact that we carry around with us a sense of guilt is a witness against us. It's one of the things that Paul points to uh, reminding us of our guilt, right? The fact that our consciences testify against us. The conscience works against our will. 
our conscience speaks to us in a way that doesn't necessarily line up with our will. We feel guilty about things we don't want to feel guilty about, right? <laughs> we try to talk ourselves out of feeling guilty sometimes. Why? Because our, our conscience doesn't follow our will. Our conscience speaks to us regardless of what we actually want. Um, the conscience is a self-testimony that there is something wrong with us. So that's the first thing. Our, the conscience is our inner voice. Um, second, we cannot control our conscience. And I just already said that basically. So I, I let my points bleed into each other. Here's the thing. We can biblically inform our conscience, but we cannot make it feel the way we want. We can biblically inform our conscience, but we can't make it feel the way we want. Third thing is our conscience can also be wrong. Our conscience is not infallible. Um, There is a difference between guilt and a guilty conscience, right? You could probably imagine criminals out there who operate with impunity and do not feel guilty, right? If you asked, asked them, do you feel guilty for robbing that bank? Do you feel guilty for shooting those bystanders? They would say, no, they got in my way. They tried to stop me. You know, they have all sorts of, of argument, <clears throat> arguments they would make and they, they have a, 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 a seared conscience. So just because their conscience doesn't feel doesn't mean that they are therefore right. So the conscience can be wrong. What do we do when our conscience is wrong? Much of scripture um, relates to people whose consciences are sensitive. Think of Paul's discussion about eating meat. We actually read some of that this morning in Romans chapter 14. Um, Other scriptures talk about those who have a seared conscience and who do things without having a sense of guilt. Both of these things are possible and both of them are wrong, right? So our conscience is not infallible, but... Paul's plan with regard to diverse consciences is not for those with sensitive consciences to get trampled on. So think about about the the brother with the weak conscience uh, in today's reading in the New Testament. Who was it? It was the brother that eats only vegetables, right? And Paul's default is to accommodate those who have sensitive consciences. So put it simply, our consciences speak to us when we do something we are convinced that we ought not to do. And they also speak to us when we omit something that we should have done. Now, this has an important bearing on what we do in public worship, and it informs why I think the regulative principle is so important. Many of us may want to do things in public worship that God hasn't given specific commands for us to do, and we can think of a way of looking at it that makes those things totally acceptable And where our good intentions completely shine through. And yet when we want others to do things that God hasn't commanded, we are unintentionally neglecting the sacred reality of that person's conscience. So if someone believes that they are being asked by their church to do something not commanded in scripture, let's say, let's say we as a church say, none of us are going to eat anything but fish on Fridays. No meat but fish. So we tell the whole church, we're all going to to fast from red meat and chicken. We're just going to have fish on Fridays. So if someone believes they're being asked by their church to do something that's not commanded in Scripture and we can't show them that God commands it, who is the one who's binding their conscience? Is God binding their conscience? Who's binding the conscience? The church is. All right, and the church is not informing the person from God's word 
that God has said to do this, but instead the church is doing it, right? So by being able to show the command in scripture, we are showing that it is not us binding the conscience. We're showing them that this is coming from God and not us. So you can see suddenly where the regulative principle becomes really important because you don't get to, given this, you don't get to ask somebody to do an element of worship that God hasn't given them to do. And you never are in danger of being the one to make them do it. So um, if we want to correct the conscience of a person, let's say we have somebody and we know their conscience is wrong. We're sure their conscience is wrong. Maybe it's too sensitive or let's say their conscience isn't sensitive enough. If we inform the person's conscience, but we don't inform the conscience biblically, it's like imagine it's like inserting rogue lines of code into the person's conscience. And now they are wrongly informed and the conscience ends up becoming sort of a core part of how they think about how their life, how they think of worship, how they think of what God calls them to. And so if we ourselves bind the conscience, it's like we're putting the, it's like we're putting, um, it's like we're putting a, uh, a virus into the person's heart and soul. Um, and that's why it's so important that the conscience be informed biblically. Um, <clears throat> Luther says, um, Luther says to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. That was his line that he said at the Diet of Worms. What were they asking him to do? They were asking him to deny things that he knew God said in his word. They wanted to impose upon his biblically informed conscience by raw power of the church. And so, and so he's actually dealing with a very similar situation here. Um, Jesus says, whoever call, causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You see a lot of focus on the conscience in our own book of church order. Um, our book of church order has this preliminary principle which says this, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from any doctrines or commandments of men, which are in any respect contrary to the word of God or which in regard to matters of faith and worship are not governed by the word of God. So I, you know, I mentioned this before. I don't remember if it was last week, but I, I mentioned before that our religious forefathers lived during times where, the, where church leaders believed that it was fine because there were no commands not to do things in the Bible that they could ask things of church members, right? So they essentially said the church in their day essentially said that anything is permitted if it's not explicitly unbiblical. So they instructed people's consciences, but they did it without biblical commands. They basically instructed them in the negative. They basically said, they basically said because God hasn't said not to do this, we may do this. Which is, again, a different question. Yeah, Benjamin. Is the informing of the conscience the same as renewing the mind? Um, it seems to me that they would be, yeah, I think so. I would, I would, maybe that's a good way of putting it. I don't know. Because if you're I have to think about that. Informing the conscience biblically, mm-hmm. you're renewing your mind biblically as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if you're renewing your mind, you're going to become somebody who is more sensitive to the sin in your own life. Uh, you're going to become more sensitive to the sin around you. Um, but you're also going to be more grace filled. So. I think renewing your mind, part of that would be informing the conscience. Sure. Yeah, I have to think about it. But yeah, I think that sounds right. Um, so 
Here's what our forefathers recognized. They recognized this. When a church tells its members, we're going to do this thing, and those members, they've already vowed subjection to the church. If that church then asks them to observe an element of worship that God never commanded, what are they harming? They're harming the conscience. And they're going beyond what God's word says and what they require. They take the place of God, whether they realize it or not. They take the place of God and try to inform the conscience, but without God's command. So the very nature of the conscience is that our consciences are always going to be bound. They're always going to be instructed one way or another. But we need to make sure that our consciences are bound and instructed by what God has said. Not what human beings tell us, it says, or that they should believe. Um, remember, um, remember Jenny Geddes? Everybody remembers Jenny Geddes, the lady who threw the, milk, the milking stool at the, uh, the bishop. Uh, and uh, with, the, with the strong Scottish accent. And you remember this. Here was the problem. Instead of appealing to scripture for what they required in worship, they basically came along and told them it's okay. But they told Jenny Geddes that they should worship, she should worship in this way, not because God's word says it, but because they said it. And so there's this plaque at St. Giles Cathedral today, which says the following. It says, constant oral tradition affirms that near this spot, a brave Scotchwoman, Janet Geddes, on the 23rd of July, 1637, struck the first blow in the great struggle for freedom of conscience, after, which after a conflict of half a century, ended in the establishment of civil and religious liberty. Um, they connect directly what was going on in that service and the violent action of Jenny Geddes with the violation of her conscience. She essentially was, was looking at the bishop and saying, you are asking me to do something that God hasn't asked me to do. Um, this is why I'm very passionate about the regulative principle. I'm, I'm passionate about it because we never have to fear as a session that we are binding anyone's conscience if we can show that it's in scripture. Uh, if we can show that it's in scripture, then God is the one who is doing that. And that is a very safe place for us as a session of a church to be. And it also means that what we do is modest. It means that we're not asking anything of you as a congregation when it comes to the elements of worship that God himself doesn't ask. Um, I don't have to feel guilty for administering the Lord's Supper to give you a really easy example of something that's commanded in God's word. I don't have to feel guilty administering the Lord's Supper as though I'm asking you to do something that God hasn't given us, right? Um, I think it would be, I, none of us in this room, I think, believe that the Lord's Supper is not a biblical thing to do. Um, that's an easy thing. I don't have to feel guilty doing that. I don't have to feel guilty preaching because Bible, the Bible tells us how important preaching is in worship. Um, I don't have to fear that in planning our worship services that I can, I'm going to be binding anyone's consciences by reading scripture aloud or by having us do public prayers or by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs because we can show these things from God's word. Now, we might struggle over the forms. We might disagree about the circumstances of how to actually administer the supper, how we should sing, what our posture should be while we're praying, but I don't need to fear that I'm binding anyone's conscience by actually doing these things. We can, we can disagree over how you do them, but we don't have to disagree over what we're doing. If I said to you, we as a church are going to put ashes on our heads and abstain from fish on Fridays, the question that you really ought to ask is, who is doing the binding of the conscience? Is it the pastor? Is it the session? 
Is it, is it, uh, or is it God? Yeah, Asha. It applies to elements. Just to elements. I think there's, uh, I think the line is very fuzzy for me because the milking stool incidents seem to be over the form and not the element. I agree. Jenny Geddes should not have thrown her milking stool. <laughs> should not have thrown her milking stool. Uh, that was an illustration of the, the posture that everybody uh, okay. stood in, and it was me telling a fun story, but yeah. Yeah. Yep. So as soon as you say we're going to do something and it has a meaning, you're talking about an element. When you want to do a thing and you want to draw out some kind of meaning from it, you're not just talking about the way you do something now. You're talking about a new a new what. So that would be I think the ashes would be an example of an element because you put the ashes on your forehead and what is it supposed to be? It's supposed to be a reminder that one day we're going to die. Uh, it's meant to be a sign of mourning, right? We put ashes on our forehead because we're, we're mourning over our sin. Um, I don't know. Any experts on Ash Wednesday that know other reasons to use the ashes? But as soon as we import meaning and explain the meaning of the action, we're actually talking about a new what. So we're not just talking about a way of doing something. Yeah, Eric. So I was struggling with the same thing. So what you're saying is regulative principle is really applying to the elements that the forms and circumstances should not be informed by the regulative principle. So what, what I said, I work from the more more applying to the less applying. So what we said, what we said last time, or at least I think was it last time or the time before? I've been moving really slowly, so <laughs> trying to remember. What we said was that the elements need to be commanded in Scripture. Mm-hmm. The forms need to be biblically informed. The circumstances need to not be foolish. <laughs> and so there is a gradation as you... Regular principles really just to the first. Yes. That, but, but, if you had, but again, if you had a form or a circumstance, that e- something that eclipses the element, then that would be a way of saying, hey, look, you've eclipsed the element. You've, you know, we use the example of singing, you know, where the music, the form, in other words, mm-hmm. ends up overwhelming the element. So... Yeah. How would baptizing baby do? I mean, some churches don't do it, right? But we're doing it. I mean, it's not yeah. Exactly uh, baptism is an element of worship. Who to baptize is still an element of worship. I think, or at least it's part of the element of worship. So, including infant baptism. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, who to baptize? Um, but it's a, it's a, it is something that churches definitely disagree over. Of course. Yeah. Um, the churches that disagree with us are just wrong. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if I didn't believe that, then I wouldn't be a Presbyterian pastor. So, <laughs> let me see if I can get through the section on conscience be- before we wrap up. Actually, we we'll, we'll have some time. Okay. Um, are we clear? You guys don't think I was eluding anything, right? Are we? Are we okay? Yeah, that's why we're. Yeah, this is why I did a whole sermon in January on who should be baptized, because I want to show from Scripture that we baptize babies not because we, as a church, by force of, of authority and by just force of personality, do it, but we we want you to be persuaded as well. 
And we do not want you to think that we as a session are binding your consciences. We want God to be the one to bind your conscience. And we want him to do it from the word. So that's why we did that. That's why we made sure to, to show you from the scripture to the best of our ability, at least, that this is what God has said. Um, here's what we do, though. We protect the hearts and souls of God's people by limiting the elements in our corporate practice to what we are convinced God commands us to do and which we show, can show from scripture. So Edmund Clowney has a great little book called The Church. And I really recommend if you're looking for a good book to read on the church, just the nature of the church, Edmund Clowney's book, The Church, is so good. It has the plainest, most basic cover you've ever seen, but it's great. It's a great little book of pages. It, I didn't say it was a little book, did I? Oh, great book. Great in size. <laughs> He's very thorough. He's really good, but... This is what Edmund Clowney says. He says, for Calvin and the Westminster divines, liberty of conscience was the issue. Any communal activity requires direction and corporate public worship is no exception. The church in its rightful sphere of authority may order worship, but ordering worship activities that the Lord approves is not the same as adding those that he has not approved, especially since participation in public worship is not optional, right? You're a Christian, God's word says you have to be here. <laughs> um, and, then, and then this is what Edmund Clowney adds. He says, few consciences today would be violated by anything that happens in a church service. And the reason Clowney says is because God rests very lightly upon the church today. We're not very sensitive. Our consciences are not very sensitive about worship because we're, our consciences are kind of seared is the way that, that Edmund Clowney puts it. We just have a high toleration for inventiveness and creativity, and we can't imagine what it would be like to have a sensitive conscience around worship. Um, very few people in the modern church even care about whether they're worshiping God in a biblical way. They're usually concerned with their own opinion of worship. How does it make me feel? What are the aesthetics? How do I respond to it? And so on. Modern Christians leave the church usually asking, asking questions like, what did I get out of this? Instead of asking, what did God think of this? Right? Those, are, those are two very different postures in our worship. And we usually leave asking the question, what did I get out of it or what did I feel? That doesn't mean that feelings don't matter. It just means that we shouldn't, that we shouldn't reflect on our... Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that feelings shouldn't reflect on, on our worship at all. But rather, it shows a shift in our attention. Um, so that's the second thing I really want to say as far as the arguments for the regulative principle. You are protecting the consciences of God's people by only having God be the one doing the binding. Third, the nature of church authority. Actually, this goes together with what I've just been saying, but I sort of want to touch on this and, and just address it a little more. Um, the nature of church authority is such that we, and I, again, I, I love just showing my Presbyterianism here. It's kind of weird to hear a pastor constantly telling you what he can't do. Um, but I try to do that. And maybe you notice that with me. I want to show you what I can't do and what God doesn't let me do. And the nature of church authority is such that we can't create elements of worship just from nowhere as long as it isn't forbidden. Um, our church confession says this. The jurisdiction of church courts is only ministerial and declarative and relates to the doctrines and precepts of Christ to the order of the church and to the exercise of discipline. Church, church courts can make no laws binding the conscience. Church courts can make no laws binding the conscience. 
In other words, we can't make you do something that God hasn't said. So this is a way of saying that church, churches, what churches can actually do is very modest. We can take what God has said and we can bring it out and we can apply it. We can't make you do what we want you to do. Those are different things. Um, pastors and sessions have modest delegated authority. And so if we ever get to a point where we're asking uh, elements of worship from you that God hasn't asked, that means we've overstepped. And, we, and the best way to know if we've overstepped is to ask the question, is this thing found in the word of God? Is this thing found in the word of God? And if we, if we do find that we can't find it in God's word, then we should reverse course. Now, that leaves the question, what's the alternative to the regulative principle? Yes, Micah. Yeah, worship is one area where it shows up, but it shows up in the rest of church life as well. So this is just us saying, you've got, we've got to do this in one area, and we need to do it in the other areas as well, wherever it, wherever it relates. Um, now, I want to mention just the alternative, and I'm not going to give it very much time because everything I've been saying has been an argument against this. The alternative is what's called the normative principle. And the normative principle, as opposed to the regulative principle... The normative principle says whatever God does not forbid is permitted as an element of worship. And the exponents of this view were the Anglicans. So the Anglican bishop, Richard Hooker, for example, would be an exponent of the normative principle. And you can find him elaborating this where he constantly would be saying to the Puritans and constantly saying to those that that were disagreeing with him, you can't find anywhere that this is forbidden in God's word. 
You can't find anywhere this is forbidden in God's word. And so, you know, the generally the Lutherans also would have applied this because they basically said, as long as it's not unbiblical or forbidden in scripture, then we can keep it, right? So the Lutherans kept a lot of things from the Roman Catholic practices. The Lutherans kept the altar. Um, the, Lutherans, uh, the Lutherans kept... Um, um, uh, the uh, the priestly priestly garments um, the priest the the Lutherans kept incense the Lutherans kept other practices from Roman Catholicism because at the end of the day they said we can't find anywhere that it's forbidden in the scripture and so the Lutherans and Anglicans end up being on one side and the Reformed end up being on the other side regulative principle ends up being a governing uh, aspect of worship in the Reformed churches and the normative principle ends up being the the governing philosophy for the Lutheran and the Anglican churches. Um, there are some today in the Reformed tradition who, practically speaking, I think follow the normative principle, but I, I'm not sure that they do it self-consciously. They just sim- simply say, well, this thing we're doing isn't unbiblical. We can't find a place that it's forbidden, and so we don't do it. And they think that's the regulative principle, but you can see how th- those, those two questions are, are miles apart from each other and can in- lead you to very different conclusions. Uh, is it commanded and is it forbidden? Those are very different questions to ask. Um, so I'm actually going to stop there. I, what I want to do in our last class is just go through some examples, go through some examples of what the regulative principle versus the normative principle looks like in regard to a few things. And they'll be spicy. Um, Ash Wednesday, Advent candles, liturgical dance, um, there's more. Um, and, and those are just those things that I don't really relish talking about. But I think they are, they are directly addressed by this. I think they are directly addressed by this. And my hope is that we think clearly enough about these that when we come to each of them, then we've got the categories in place to think well about it, to think in a biblical way about it. What I want to do now, though, is close us in prayer. And then do you want me to pray? So what I'm going to do is two things then, especially since I have all of your attention. I want to pray for the lesson, and I also want to pray for lunch, and then invite you to go right ahead and have lunch after we, after we finish praying. So um, let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that we have your word to inform our consciences. We thank you that we have your scripture, Lord, in which you reveal to us your love of your own glory, your love of your people, your love for your worship. And I pray that we would be those who prize your worship too. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to to be sensitive and to love brothers and sisters whose consciences are, 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 are sensitive. But I also pray that our consciences would be informed by your word and not by our own ideas, not by our own traditions, Lord, but really by what you have said to us in, the, in your word. Uh, would you help us, God? Would you help us as we live with brothers and sisters that we might disagree with? We pray that you would always help us to be those who go to your standard, who go to your word, and who understand what it is that pleases you from there and not from our own imaginations. Would you be with us today, Lord? Thank you for the lunch that we are about to have. Thank you for those who have, who have brought it. Thank you for those, Lord, who are here to enjoy it together. I pray that you would glorify us in our conversation. I pray that you would help for us to draw near to your, your brothers and those brothers and sisters who are here as part of our church 
and for visitors, Lord. I pray that the love of your people for each other would be evident to all who witness it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.